there's one and only one God. God is three. means he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and the three are God. Father's God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, each possessing all that it means to be, to be God. So those were the foundation stones for this, for this doctrine. Uh, but we're not yet fully done Um, there are still some very important things that we need to talk about to make sure we have the entire picture that the Scripture gives to us about the Trinity. Um, In other words, answer some of these questions. What do we mean by the term person? Why is one the Father, and one the Son, and one the Spirit? Have they always been this way? How do these relate to one another And what makes them distinct from one another? And are they entirely distinct beings from one another, or are they simply various ways in which God reveals himself? And do these questions really matter at all in the the first place? So my goal tonight is to answer those questions, and then to examine some heresies and errors that, that come when we get any of these basic elements wrong. And then finally, we'll seek to bring it all together and apply it to our lives. Um, So tonight, we're going to get into some pretty deep waters. We're going to be brushing up against some great mysteries in the Bible. Last week, we said that God has revealed himself progressively. In Revelation, um, we learn about the Trinity specifically in the New Testament through Christ uh, in in a unique way. So there is much we can say about God. There's much we must say about God. But there also comes a point when we need to lay our hands over our mouths and cannot say any more than what he has revealed to us in his word. And so we're just going to have to walk that balance this evening. And to do that, I want to begin with a quote by by John Calvin from his Institutes on the Trinity. He warns us from prying into mysteries here to wander either into error or even into just vain speculation about God. He gives an apt warning when he writes. He says here, he's talking about the Trinity. Indeed, if anywhere in the secret mysteries of Scripture, we ought to play the philosopher soberly and with great moderation. Let us use great caution that neither our thoughts nor our speech go beyond the limits to which the word of God itself extends. Let us then willingly leave to God the knowledge of himself. For, as Hilary, that's St. Hilary, church father, says, he is the one fit witness to himself and is not known except through himself. But we shall be leaving it to him. How? If we conceive him to be as he has revealed himself to us without inquiring about him elsewhere than from his word. So that is how we are going to try to proceed this evening. We want to say all that scripture says, but then we must stop there. And it's especially tempting to not do that when it comes to the Trinity, as we will see. So let me begin by talking about the distinctions between the persons in the Trinity. First, what do we mean by this term, person? It's an interesting word. We obviously do not mean by it that um, the idea of a a human being, which is normally how we use this word, person, it's not what we're talking about. 
It's also not a word that you're going to encounter in the Bible. You're never going to find this word, the three persons of God, or or anything like that. Um, And without getting into a detailed history of how we came to use this terminology, let me just say that it is a word that has been chosen to express the truth that the three, Father, Son, and Spirit, while alike in nature, are distinct from one another. That is a truth we find in the Bible, and this term, person, has been chosen to simply represent that truth. We must remember that theological words can be helpful, even if they're not found in the Bible, to express and and clarify a, a biblical truth. But we must be careful that we do not think that these words, like person, give us extra insight into the being of God that we can't have through Scripture. The same is with this, this word person. It's not telling us anything more than simply that, that these three are, are distinct from one another. John Calvin, again, noticed that even the, the ancients, the church fathers, did not completely agree on this terminology between words to describe God's unity on the one hand and God's plurality on the other hand. Until finally the church had to come to a decision Note the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And they had to pick a word. One word to represent his unity and one word to represent his, his plurality. And this is what Calvin says. He says, indeed, I could wish that these, the, the, these man-made terms were buried. If only among all men this faith were agreed on. So he notes these are not words from the Bible. They're helpful But the ultimate thing we're after is this. Number one, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one God. And yet the Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit the Son, but that they are differentiated by a peculiar quality. So when we say person, we're simply attempting to affirm this truth. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct. And that is a truth we find in the Bible. So let's move on to defend that statement. So biblical affirmations of the distinctions between the persons. We could go to many places in the Bible to do this, but for the sake of simplicity, I would invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Um, So last week that the entire New Testament is Trinitarian, But John places a special emphasis on this this doctrine. And our point here is simply to demonstrate that the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are not only fully divine, that's what we defended last week, but that they are distinct from one another. They relate to one another in unique ways and are not simply various ways that God has revealed himself or different perspectives on God. So first, the the distinctions are going to be seen in the Son's relationship with the Father. We can see how the Son relates to the Father in the Bible, and I want to show you three sort of ways. How he does it before his incarnation, how he relates to the Father in his incarnation, and then how he relates to the Father in his glorification after his resurrection. So let's walk through these quickly. Number one, the pre-incarnate ways in which the Son related to the Father. Number one is the son's relationship of intimacy with the father. Look over at John chapter 1, 
verse 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We looked at the phrase last week. It said the Word was God. Everything that belongs to God's being belonged to the Word. But here we're keying in on the phrase the Word was with God. It's literally He was toward God. The eye of face-to-face, eye-to-eye relationship with God the Father. He was God and all that means to be God and He was distinct from the Father, eye-to-eye towards Him from eternity. Daniel Wallace, a Greek grammarian, said this. He said the construction the evangelist chose to express this idea was the most concise way he could have stated that the Word was God and yet was distinct from the Father. John is razor-sharp precise in this verse. Tells us the Word was with God and He was distinct from God and He enjoyed an intimate relationship with His Father. Look down in verse 18. He makes the same point again, this relationship of intimacy with the Father before His incarnation. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. It's literally the only begotten God, there's that word theos again, referring to Christ, the Word, who is at the Father's side. It's literally the one being in the bosom of the Father. It's interesting, the same expression is used of the Apostle John in the upper room as he is leaning on Christ's breast or his bosom. It says he was in the bosom of Christ. It's the same phrase here. It's this idea of closeness and affection and love and intimacy between the Son with the Father. So that is one way the Son related to the Father before His incarnation. Another way is in the Son's participation in the glory and love of the Father. Go over to John 17. All before the incarnation. Look at verse 5. He is praying, high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, the Son enjoyed the same glory as the Father from eternity since He is God. Old Testament says God gives His glory to none else. So this is an explicit claim for deity. And yet He enjoyed it, what does He say? With the Father. Here He prays that after His cross work, the Father would return Him to the same glory He enjoyed with the Father from eternity. Look to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. 
We're going to come back to this verse later, but I just want to note that phrase. You, you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the basis on which the Father will glorify the Son after His cross. It's because He has always loved Him. The Father has for eternity been outgoing toward His Son in love. From eternity, the Father loved the Son, and the Son participated in the glory of the Father. So that's pre-incarnate ways that Christ related to the Father. Next, look at some incarnate ways. The Son related to the Father. There's a whole bunch of these. I, I just have a handful for you. In the incarnation, how does the Son relate to the Father? Well, number one, He reveals and represents the Father. We saw that back in John 1.18. He has fully made Him known. He has fully revealed Him. That's what happened in the incarnation. He revealed the Father to us. Passage here, John 12.44 Jesus said, it's inseparable link between me and the Father. You believe in me, you believe in the one who sent me. You see me, you see the one who sent me. He perfectly represents the Father to humanity. Next, the Son is sent by the Father. The Son is sent by the Father. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world would be saved. The Father sends his Son. John 6, 32, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It's Jesus Christ. 6, 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. 7, 28, I have not come of my own accord. Just think about this. If God were a singular being, could he say this? Or does not this verse require that we see they're distinct? I've not come of my own accord. But he who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. The Son is sent by the Father. Son prays to the Father. We see this repeatedly in the Gospels. This is at the tomb of Lazarus. He lifts his eyes and, and prays to the Father. The Son accomplishes the Father's plans and desires in perfect submission. This is a, a big point in the Gospel of John. I'll re read to you some, some verses here. John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, they're distinct. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Throughout John, we learn that all of Christ's words and his teachings are not his. They're the ones the Father gave him. Jesus answered, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 8, 26, I declare to the world what I heard from the Father. John 12, 49, He Himself has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. John 17, 4, Accomplish the work that you gave me to do. So the Father gave the Son words to speak, 
and works to accomplish, and the Son perfectly spoke and accomplished all of it. They are distinct from one another. The Son honors the Father. Flip through some of these. The Son is honored by the Father. And finally, the Son is borne witness to by the Father, such that he is not a self-proclaimer. Again, this is a big theme in John. John 5, Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name. That's on his authority and for his glory. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his name for his own glory and his own authority, you will receive him. Christ is not a self-proclaimer. He's not come on his own authority for his glory. John 7, 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. He's not doing that. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Look at this one. John 8, 17. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. If God were a singular being, could he say that? No. They are distinct from one another. So those are some incarnate ways in which the Son related to the Father. Finally, post-glorification ways in which the Son relates to the Father. If you feel like we're beating a dead horse here, it's, there's a reason. Um, you may be aware of it, you may not. Number one, he's glorified by the Father in John 17. Father, I desire they may you've given me, may be with me, to see my glory that you've given me. He receives worship alongside the Father. Revelation 5, to him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, it's the Son. But they receive the same worship and praise. They both equally deserve it. Be blessing, honor, glory, and my forever. And finally, he will deliver the kingdom over to the Father in the end. 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. They're distinct. Verse, uh, verse 28. Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjected Subjection to Him. It's God the Father, that God may be all in all. So those are some ways the Son is shown to be distinct from the Father and the ways they relate with one another. Let's go on to the Spirit really quickly. Ways the Spirit is distinct from the Father and the Son. The first thing we need to do here is to defend the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit the reality of his, his personhood. Last week, we demonstrated that the Spirit is divine. But here, we're defending that he is a person in the sense that we have talked about personhood. Um, he's distinct from the Father and the Son. He's not simply a force or a power exerted by the Father or the Son. He is a distinct being alongside the Father and the Son. Let me show you a few ways the, this is demonstrated in the New Testament. Number one, it's by the use of masculine pronouns. Now, I don't want to bog you down in, in Greek grammar, um, but this is important. All nouns in Greek have gender, masculine, feminine, or neuter. Spirit is a neuter noun. Ruach in Hebrew, or pneuma in Greek, 
means breath, wind, or spirit. If you have a neuter noun, then a pronoun, he, she, it, or this, or that, needs to be neuter to, to modify it. But in a couple passages, John gives us a masculine pronoun. Very significant. Let me show you a couple of them. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He. So that doesn't modify grammatically spirit. That's masculine, but it's clear it's talking about Him. Chapter 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me. In other words, if the Spirit was a mere force, then such a shift would be unnecessary and actually be quite confusing. Um, So John is is making this this point here. Next, how do we know the Spirit is a person? By the use of first-person speech. Acts 10. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, he calls him to rise and go down, for I have sent them. That's the Holy Spirit talking. Same thing in Acts 13. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, the work that I have called them. If the Spirit was not a distinct being from the Father and the Son, this language would not be appropriate. He could not say, I have done it. Finally, his personhood is is demonstrated in the Trinitarian formulations that we saw last week, like the Great Commission, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is a distinct being. He is a person distinct from the Father and the Son. So how do they relate? Really quickly, the Spirit was sent from the Father and the Son. John 14, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Christ speaking, he will teach you all things. John 15, 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send you, Christ, from the Father. The Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. They're distinct from one another. Number three, the Spirit was given to Christ in his public ministry. In his baptism, the Spirit descends on him and empowers him for ministry. And finally, the Spirit seeks to glorify Christ, declaring his words. John 16, 14, he will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, so let's come up for air. That was a lot of content, a lot of data, um, but I'm trying to make a point here. Our point has simply been that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They all exist together. Each is fully God, and all three as the one true God. And these persons are not just different perspectives on God or different ways God might act, but they're three distinct persons in the sense that we're using that word. They're not just parts of God. You add them up, and then you get the totality of God's being. No, each is fully God, and each is distinct from one another. So any questions before we, we go on? Is that any of that? Yes. Okay, so uh, we talked about that last week. 
That's fine. I can get you uh, an outline. But Isaiah 9, 6, about the, the deity of Messiah, you mean? Yes. Yep. I will give you an outline afterwards. Yes, ma'am. All righty. Well, that brings us to our next point, which is now the, the nature of these distinctions. So, we're, so far, we've just been trying to demonstrate that they're distinct persons in the Godhead. And now I want to sort of zoom in a little bit and consider this point a bit further um, on the nature of these distinctions. And I think when we do some of the seeming contradictions, um, that there's one God and three persons that are fully God, I think when we understand this a bit better, it, it helps a bit more to, to affirm it, to, to get our minds around it a little better. We can't remove the tension that's there, but as we understand the, their relationships, it helps to make sense of, of the whole. So how are the Father and the Son and the Spirit distinct from one another? How do they relate to one another in distinct ways? And here we're going to begin by looking at the ways they relate as they work and operate in this world. And then we're going to step back into eternity past and consider how they related then. But this is where we come to find out who God is as he relates to us here and and now. So let's look at some of the, the nature of these distinctions. First is the distinction of roles of subordination in God's dealings with the world. This is often referred to as the economic trinity. Economic simply meaning order or hierarchy in God's works and in his world. Um, We've already seen examples of this from the verses that we just quoted, um, but let me take us to look a bit more closely at it. So first, the Father. The Father. Repeatedly in the Gospels, we discover it's the Father who sent Christ. Christ did not send the Father. The Father is obeyed. It's Father's plan of redemption that's accomplished by Christ. The Father gave Christ a people to save, and words to speak, and works to perform. The Son is born. The Son is incarnated. The Son obeys. The Son accomplishes the Father's purposes. The Son saves those the Father gave Him, and He does it all for the glory of the Father. And the Spirit is given by Christ. And he's given by the Father to disciples of Christ. The Spirit works to bring all glory to Christ. He grants faith in Christ. He creates a new covenant heart in those for whom Christ dies. The Spirit works to bring the words of Christ to remembrance. Brings conviction of sin to people to bring them to Christ. He fills the lives of Christ's disciples with fruitfulness. So he's Christ-centered, the Holy Spirit. So in other words, there's a very clear arrangement of submission and subordination in God's dealings with the world in redemption and history. The Father is head over all. He plans. He sins. The Son is in perfect submission to the Father and accomplishes all of His purposes. And the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son to accomplish the work of Christ. Now, none of that implies inferiority. None of that implies that any is less God than the other. These are just simply ways that they have voluntarily arranged themselves 
under one another for the purpose of executing God's plan of redemption. Calvin put it this way. He said, this distinction is this. To the Father is attributed the beginning of activity and the fountain and wellspring of all things. To the Son, wisdom, counsel, and the ordered disposition or accomplishment of all things. But to the Spirit is assigned the power and efficacy of that activity. Or you could say the Father plans, and the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. That is how God operates in His three persons as He works redemption and creation and intervenes into history. And yet, and this prepares us now for our, for our next point, these arrangements within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are not arbitrary. They're not random. There is a reason why the Son was born and incarnated and not the Father. And why the Spirit was sent by the Son and the Son was not sent by the Spirit. In other words, what we observe here about God's dealings with the world sheds some light on and give us glimpses into his being prior to Christ's incarnation. Kostenberger and Swain write this, the triune God, in other words, acts characteristically in the triune mission. And he does so because revealing his true character is internal to that mission. That is to say, God in his three persons so works so that through the coming of Christ, he would reveal something to us about his eternal being. And now we can take a step back into eternity past and consider how did these persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, relate to one another then? This takes to what is called often the imminent trinity. And the distinction here is the distinction of origin. Kostenberger and Swain again write this, according to the Bishop of Hippo, it would be Augustine, the missions of the Son and the Spirit in history reveal something about the eternal, unchanging life of the Trinity. Specifically, one can be sent in time only from someone, by someone from whom one eternally Proceeds. Temporal missions reveal and are rooted in eternal processions. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, and what do we mean by this word origin? Uh, well, we obviously do not mean that any of these beings are created beings. We're not saying that the persons are created. That's what the Arians believe. That's heresy. This would imply that one was less God than than the other, and that's not true. So we are not talking about origin in terms of creation. We're talking about it in terms of eternal procession. And this is one of those places people are tempted to go further than Scripture permits. But I'm bringing it up here because it's been an important component in orthodoxy and in historical Christianity. Um, It's the traditional way to explain the son's sonship. But I also bring it up because the Bible does make reference to to this concept. So let me explain what what I mean quickly. And then I'll open it up for for some questions. 
The distinction of origin. Number one, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Son is eternally begotten of, of the Father. He is just as much God as the Father. He is just as eternal as the Father. And yet he has this relationship with the Father as the Father's eternally begotten Son. This is how the Nicene Creed puts it. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, consubstantial, or of the same nature, with the Father. But on what grounds can we say that? Certainly, there's no authority in a creed, as helpful as it might be. Well, let me give you a couple ways why I think that is appropriate to talk this way. Number one, it is affirmed by way of analogy. In other words, there must have been some very real reason why it was appropriate for the Son to be born and incarnated rather than the others. And through his birth and incarnation, we can understand something of his eternal life. It can be affirmed by way of analogy. The Father was not sent by the Son. The Son was sent by the Father. He became incarnated because he was the eternal Son of the Father. John 3.17 God did not send his Son. Prior to incarnation, he was the Son of God into the world to condemn but to save. Why was Christ incarnated? Because he was his Son. See that? So we can affirm it by way of analogy. We can also affirm it by some key passages in Scripture. So go to John chapter 5 with me in verse 26. John 5, 26. This is perhaps one of the key texts on this doctrine. It has been throughout church history. John 5, 26. Jesus says, as the Father has life in himself. The idea there is self-existing life. So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So this verse comes in the context of Jesus um, claiming that he works on the same terms with God. So go back to verses 17 to 18. He performs this work on the Sabbath. The Jews are angry with him. And he claims in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. And the Jews accuse him of making himself equal with God. So, verse 18, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What they meant by it was that he's propping himself up as some competing deity with the father. It's a threat to monotheism. You're claiming equality with God, independence from, from God. And so, what follows is perhaps one of the clearest and most profound explanations of the Trinity. And Jesus affirms that he is equal with God in the sense that everything that belongs to God belongs to him, but he is not equal with him in the sense that he's some independent competing deity. He is the eternal Son 
with the Father. And verse 26 makes exactly this point. Look what it says. Notice what actually John does not say. It does not say, as the Father has life in himself, so also the Son has life in himself. If it said that, that would be ditheism. Two gods separately have life in themselves, independently existing. That's not what it says. But neither does it say, as the Father has self-existing life, life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life. Well, that would imply that Christ is somehow lesser God. He was created being. He does not possess self-existing life. That's a key attribute of God. He wouldn't be God at all. Rather, Jesus says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Both equally possess self-existing life as God, and yet the Son possesses it in a way that is distinct from the Father, somehow dependent on the Father. What does that mean, the Father granted this to the Son? D.A. Carson writes, he says, the best response remains that adopted by Augustine and the other fathers of the church, this is an eternal grant. It is not as if there was a moment when God granted to the Son to have life in himself, before which the Son did not have life in himself. God has eternally granted this to the Son. It's what's often called eternal generation. The Son possesses the same self-existing life of the Father, but He possesses it as a Son, eternally begotten from the Father. Never a time which He wasn't a Son, and never a time which He wasn't God. Now, just what that means, or how that works, I don't know. And Scripture is silent, and we must not go further. John Frame gives us a helpful balance here. He says, the biblical data authorize us to speak of the eternal generation of the Son, and it's certainly appropriate for the church to confess the statement of the Nicene Creed. But they do not describe this eternal relationship in any detail. We know at least that the Son is not an arbitrary title. The eternal Son is analogous to human sons in some way. So, it's the distinction of origin. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, eternally a Son. Next, the Spirit. Any questions on that? I know that's very deep waters. I know that's it's hard. You can't hard to wrap your mind around it. Um, and yet, it's important to get it. Um, questions, comments before we go on? Sure. So it would seem to hint at Jesus Christ as a person yep. created. Yeah, and that, that, that's where you just have to come back to Scripture. What does Scripture claim? What does Scripture state? Right? Like That's the authority. A creed, whatever it is, is serving Scripture. It wants to make that clear. Yeah. Um, so in, insofar as it does that, that, it's helpful. In the, in the creed, it, it, yeah. In my mind, 
you have to be careful. Yep. Yep. It's good. Got to be careful. Yep. Good. Anything else? Yes, sir. I think it, it's absolutely appropriate <laughs> to say that. It's incomprehensible, and yet we must go as far as the Scripture would take us, right? And I think it would take us this far, and then it closes the curtain, um, and we come to that wall of worship again and, uh, and praise the Lord for His incomprehensibility and His glory. Um, but it is. Um, yeah. That's right, that's right. That brings us all the way back to our first lesson in systematic theology, the necessity of Scripture, right? This is our foundation that we build our doctrine, not on human reasoning. And the reason people go all kinds of errors with the Trinity is that human reasoning trumps Scripture. Um, And when you do that, you will go amiss. So quickly, number two, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. I'm not going to get into this Deeply, we could talk about, some of you may be aware, the big schism that happened over the phrase, uh, the filioque clause that was added to the Nicene Creed and the Son, um, East and West Church split. Based on a text, John 15, 26, um, and I don't think um, that that text can really bear the weight that was put on it. But I think we can at least say about the Spirit's relationship with the Father and the Son Um, Same thing we said about the Son. There was something that was appropriate to the fact that the Spirit was given by the Father and sent through the Son, which reflects their eternal relationships with one another. Um, So I think you can rightly say the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but again, what that means or what that looks like, we're not told. So the point of emphasis here is that these relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit did not begin at a point in time. So if you want to say, so so what, Michael? What what is the point? That's the point. The relationships did not begin at a point in time. Nor were their individual roles in working out God's plan arbitrary. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. So when you think of God's triunity, you should think that behind all things is a loving Father, eternally begetting a Son, from whom come the Spirit. And these three exist eternally in a relationship of mutual love and harmony, and in their roles appropriate to their eternal relationships. So that's the distinction between the persons of the Trinity. All right, quickly. Brings us now to their unity. Nothing that we've said should imply any kind of disunity among the Trinity. They are perfectly united. Um, God is three, and the three are one. So let me show you a few ways this is demonstrated. Their interdependence. So if you're with me in John 5, go to verse 19. Their interdependence. 
19a, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. Jesus says that the Son does whatever the Father does exclusively. He does nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. There is never a maverick moment with Jesus. He only and always does what the Father's doing, always responding to the Father. Never a thing Jesus does that the Father is not first ordering. Look at the rest of the verse. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So not only does the Son do whatever the Father does exclusively, He does whatever the Father does exhaustively. There's not a single thing the Father does that the Son does not also do. Or you could say it the other way. There's not a single work the Father does that He does not do it through His Son. In other words, every work of God is Trinitarian. There's not a single work that God performs that all the members of the Trinity are not involved in. They're interdependent. And why is that the case? Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows to Him all that He Himself is doing. So not only is every work of God Trinitarian, but this verse tells us that every work of God is from the overflow of the love internal to the Trinity. The love the Father has for the Son. This is their interdependence. This truth is made clear a number of places in John. We see this in one another. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. see it a number of times, John 14, 17. It is simply meant to emphasize the complete unity of the Godhead. The Son is in perfect devotion to the Father. The Father is so full of delight in His Son, their, their union is unbreakable. It's their interdependence. Next, we see their mutual glorification. How are they united? United in their mutual glorification. The Son aimed and desired above all the Father's glory. He went to the cross for the glory of the Father. John 12, for this purpose I have come. What's that? Father, glorify your name. That was Christ's ultimate motivation in the cross. And likewise, the Father pursued His Son's glory in the cross. John 8, 28, what would happen in the cross? Christ's deity would put it, be put on display. You'll know that I am. In John 12, 23, the Son of Man will be glorified. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but I cannot help but point out here that how it is from this love of the Son for the Father's glory and the delight of the Father and the Son's glory that the gospel flows out to you and me. All that God accomplishes in the gospel for sinners is the overflow of His pursuit for the mutual glory of Himself in the Trinity. Go over to John 17. Ultimately, God so loved His Son that He sent His Son so that the glories of the Son might be revealed and that those who believe in Him might come to share in the same love the Father has 
for the Son. Look at the very end of John 17, verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you, the Father, have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The love which the Father has for the Son now takes up residence in the hearts of believers who likewise love the Son. That was God's goal. That's why God sent Christ ultimately for redemption, that you could share in the Father's pleasure and delight in loving His Son. John Owen says it this way, Therein consists the principal part of our renovation into His image. Nothing renders us so like unto God as our love of Jesus Christ. It is the love the Father has for the Son and the love the Son has for the Father from which the gospel flows for you and me. That's why the Trinity is good news. We'll unpack some of these implications in in just a minute. Um, But that concludes the, the section about the distinction of their persons. They're distinct from one another. They relate to one another in these ways. They're eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet they're a perfect harmony, perfect unity um, with one another. And that is good news. All right, well, let's come quickly to some heresies, errors, and illustrations of the Trinity. Notice I lumped illustrations together with heresies. And I wonder why I did that. Uh, We will see in a moment. So first, let me give you a few historical Trinitarian errors and heresies. The first is Arianism. You're probably familiar with it. It's what was the impetus of the Nicene Creed. Um, Arianism claims that there was a time in which the Son was not. It was a denial of the full deity of, of Christ. All the errors and the heresies that come about the Trinity is a denial of one of those essential elements that we've talked about. God exists eternally in three distinct persons. There is one God. Each person is fully God. You get any of those wrong, you will have heresy. And Arianism obviously denies that last one. The Son is fully God. Um, That is heresy. There's another one, probably more subtle and prevalent, called modalism or Sibelianism. Modalism, what does it claim? It it claims that God does not exist eternally in three persons, three distinct persons. It teaches that God is a singular being who at different periods in time appears in different functions or different modes. So you hear that word modes, modalism. That's really what we've been combating this whole lesson here. Sometimes he appears as the Father, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Spirit. Um, But he's just a singular being. That's heresy. Modern-day modalists would include uh, oneness Pentecostalism and Jesus-only theology. Um, But why do people believe this? Um, I think... One of the main reasons is it's simple. It appeals to to us. It's not so hard and complex. It more equates with human reasoning. Um, And yet, nevertheless, it is serious. It's a serious error. But why? 
why is modalism, Sibelianism, so, so dangerous? Why do you have to affirm that God has eternally existed in three distinct persons? Well, let me give you a few. Number one, it is a denial of the explicit teaching of Scripture. And we just gave text after text after text tonight to emphasize the distinctness of the, the persons from, from eternity. Number two, it makes Christ's substitutionary work on the cross empty. If Jesus is just the Father in another form, then Jesus only obeyed himself. He is not like we are, and he could not be our substitute in perfect obedience to God. And more than that, the atonement is emptied, because modalism makes it impossible that Christ should experience the wrath and judgment of God poured out on him as a substitute in your place. That cannot happen if he is the same as the Father, as the, as the Spirit. Let me give you some texts. Not to steal Pastor Farrell's thunder here. It's coming up. Romans 3.25 Whom God, the Father, put forward as a propitiation, a wrath absorber by His blood to be received by faith. The Father put Christ forward to pour His wrath out on Him in our place. You don't have the distinct persons in the Trinity. You do not have substitutionary atonement. and You cannot be saved. Denies Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him and to make his soul a guilt offering. That's why modalism is serious error. Finally, it denies the, the true sonship of Christ. He was not really son at all. D.A. Carson says, as different as Arianism and Sibelianism may be, both heresies have this in common. They both deny the true sonship of the Son, as Hillary, the church father, saw. The former teaches that he is a creature rather than a son, and the latter teaches that he is the same person as the Father, and therefore not a genuine son. This is what John would tell us. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Modalists don't want the Son, they just want the Father. Or they just want the Father, they don't want the Son, they don't want both. And John insists that the only way you can have one is to have the other. So those are some errors, common errors um, around the, the Trinity. So let me push through the, the rest of the, the stuff that I have here, and then I'll open it up for, for some questions. What about illustrations? What are some common illustrations that you have heard of the, of the Trinity? An egg, good. The shell, the white, and the yolk. What heresy is that? I don't know if it's modalism. It sounds more like Arianism or right, just the, these parts, right? Neither is fully God, but you combine them together and they, they become God, right? The shell is not the entirety of the egg. The yolk is not the entirety of the egg, but put them all together. Well, then you got the, the egg. That, 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 that's heresy. Um, the Father is fully God. The Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. What's another illustration? Water. Water. It exists sometimes as a solid, sometimes as a liquid, and sometimes as a vapor. Well, that's like God. What heresy is that? That's modalism. That's Sibelianism. He sometimes appears like this, and sometimes like this, 
and sometimes like, like this. Um, any others? Sorry? An apple, yeah, same thing with an egg. Um, you've probably heard of a relationship. A man could be, have the title as a grandfather and a father and a son all at the same time. Um, but again, that's the heresy of modalism. He can't relate to himself in those two as a father and a son together. He's sometimes a father, sometimes relates as a grandfather, sometimes as a, as a son. So the, the pitfalls is that they all tend towards either modalism, Arianism, or tritheism. So don't use illustrations. I was trying to figure out what graphic to use on my PowerPoint. It's like, man, I better not do anything or I'm going to be a, a heretic up here. So I, I left it blank this evening. So, um, okay, we have five minutes left, and I want to close by just talking about some application of this doctrine to us. We have gone into the deep end of the swimming pool. We've thought about uh, really heavy things, big things, weighty things. The question is, okay, well, it's important, so what? Michael Reeves um, put it this way in his little book there. He says, we explain that the Father is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father, and that there are not three gods and so on, all of which is true. But it can leave one with the hollow sense that one has successfully avoided all sorts of nasty heresies, but at the cost of wondering who or what one is actually able to worship. And that is not how I want to end this study. God's Trinitarian being is glorious and it's good news for you and me. But why? And how should it shape, should it shape us? Let me give you some of these ways. I'm not going to go through all these texts. I invite you to study them on your own. The first point of application is we must know and rest in God's Trinitarian commitment to believers. Christ is committed to you based on His commitment to the Father. He's come to save a people given to Him by the Father. and He's come to ensure the salvation of those given to Him. Let me show you one text. This is just glorious. John 10, 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of His hand. No one can take them out of my hand, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And He says it again, Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, the ultimate basis on which your security as a believer lies is not just in the strength of the Father's hand. And it's not just in the strength of the Son's hand, as strong as those are. Christ is saying your security as a believer is as strong as the ties of the Trinity are strong. You will be lost, believer, only when the Son ceases to be unified and devoted to His Father. The Father gave you to the Son. And that is how devoted the Son is to you, with the same devotion He's devoted to the Father. Know that. Rest in that. The good news of the Trinity for you. It overflows from God's love for the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Rest there. Know that. Know His commitment to you. And the Father is the same way. He's committed to you. He draws people to Christ. 
He honors those who honor Christ, and he loves those who love Christ. That's huge, and that leads to the final, final point here. We must commune with God in a Trinitarian manner. Rest in his Trinitarian commitment to you and commune with him in a Trinitarian manner. And this is where I would direct you to John Owen. Um, the goal of our salvation, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know him, the true God, in Jesus Christ. And we said you know him, an intimate relationship with the triune God. Let me give you a, a taste for here, a quote from John Owen, specifically on communion with the Father and how that comes through the gospel. Ask yourself, do you relate to the Father in this way? Christians walk oftentimes with exceedingly troubled hearts concerning the thoughts of the Father toward them. They are well persuaded of the Lord Christ and His goodwill. The difficulty lies in what is their acceptance with the Father? What is His heart toward them? Now this ought to be so far away that His love ought to be looked on as the fountain from which all other sweetness flow. He goes on. Though there be no light for us but in the beams, yet we may by beams see the sun, which is the fountain of it. Though all our refreshment actually lie in the streams, yet by them we are led up to the fountain. Jesus Christ, in respect of the love of the Father, is but the beam, the stream, wherein though actually all our light, all our refreshment lies, yet by him we are led to the fountain the sun of eternal love itself. Would believers exercise themselves herein, they would find it a matter of no small spiritual improvement in their walking with God. In other words, Owen is saying that by the love of Christ that we've received and experienced in the gospel, we are meant to be led back up to the eternal fountain of the Father which sent Christ. If Christ so loved you, believers, no, the Father has so and does still so love you. And if you know that, that changes everything about how you relate to God, how you pray to Him, how you live under His smile and under His love. And there is much more we could say here, but it's important. The Trinity um, affects everything. Paul. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So we're out of time. Let me just say this. That word one there, I think John's expanding on it. It's the idea of unity. And we see that all over John, that this unity between the Father and, and the Son. I don't think he's saying we're the same, we're identical. Um, I think John clearly shows that that's not what he means by I and the Father are one. It's the idea of unity and, and devotion and mutual commitment to, to one another. But, mm-hmm. Say so. But we can talk about it more afterward. So, all right. So I know that was a lot. I poured it out. It's my last chance to get it all in. Um, but uh, thank you for hanging in there. Um, if you have any questions, please come up afterwards. Sorry to keep you over a couple minutes, um, but let me pray for you, Father. We thank you for your word. Thank you for how great you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us as the triune God, and help us from this, Lord, to go and to pursue knowing you. That's what we'll be doing for eternity, knowing you. 
the eternal God and Jesus Christ whom you sent in the Holy Spirit. Let us know your love, Father, and commune with Christ in his grace and walk in the encouragement and fellowship of the Spirit through the Word. We praise you, Lord, and thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.